So this guy decides to join a monastery. And this particular order of monks is very strict. They have really high expectations. And their focus was on silence and meditation. And so one of the rules of this order of monks was that for the first three months you're there, you're only allowed to speak two words each month. So at the end of the first month, he says, bad food. At the end of the second month, he says, hard bed. At the end of the third month, he says, I quit. And the head monk says, well, you might as well quit. All you do is complain anyways. As Pastor Justine alluded to, I want to talk to you today about contentment and generosity. Contentment and generosity. All he ever wanted in life was more. He wanted more money. So he did business deals, and he wheeled and he dealed, and he was able to accumulate a fortune of multiple billions, with a B, of dollars. And that was back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. He wanted more fame. And so he bought into the Hollywood scene, and he became a filmmaker. He wanted more sensual pleasures, and so he paid to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills. And so he designed and built and piloted the biggest, and at one point, the fastest airplane in the world. He wanted more power. So he secretly manipulated things politically and through money so that he really had two U.S. presidents at his beck and call. All he ever wanted was more. And at the heart of this philosophical approach to life is the conviction that more, if I only had more, then I'll be truly satisfied. But as he came to the end of his life, he was emaciated, he was anemic, he had a sunken chest, his fingernails were so long they were in sort of grotesque corkscrews, his teeth were rotting and they were black, he had tumors in his body, he had needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died a very unhappy man. Can I ask you, has our most recent acquisition truly satisfied our soul? Has our most recent thrill, has our promotion at work, has that new project we've taken on, is that marriage or that child that we've had, have any of those things really brought ultimate satisfaction? As you've often heard me say, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem comes when we look to any of those things for satisfaction or contentment in life. And we mistakenly often try to do that, don't we? I, I definitely have. We're concluding our series of messages called Unstuck today in the book of Philippians. And in today's passage, Paul invites us to consider our current circumstances and the role of Christ in those circumstances. 
And to borrow a phrase from Pastor Justine that she's used over and over again in these past weeks, the focus of Philippians is Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. Use your Bible or your device and follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 4, from verse 10 through 23. Philippians 4, 10 through 23. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. As we start looking at this, I point out to you, as I have in the past, that Paul is not saying, he's not saying, that we are required to stay in whatever set of circumstances or condition we find ourselves in. He never advocates for being stagnant in life or being complacent in life. And we clearly see it illustrated in his life because the text shows us in verse 16, multiple times, as well as in verse 18, he was prepared to have his circumstances changed by the gifts that they sent. And we see all through the text that his circumstances fluctuated radically at times, sometimes being very much in need, sometimes having plenty. And he was ready to have those circumstances changed. And so when Epaphroditus brought the gift from the Philippian church, whether he was in Thessalonica or in Rome, he allowed his situation to be placed, changed from a place of need to a place of being amply supplied. So what he is not saying, and some people will say things like this, what Paul is not saying is that you are somehow more spiritual or more noble if you choose a place of poverty 
or a place of want. That in fact, some people will suggest in order to be more spiritual, you have to be in a place of poverty or in a place of want. Paul is not saying that because he experienced plenty and he experienced want in life. And he was a very forward-looking individual. And so he's definitely not counseling complacency or neglect or laziness. Yet he is saying that sometimes those kinds of difficulties will be present in life. And so he wants to talk to us about some, in very plain terms, about contentment and generosity. And I think that, that there's a linkage between those things that's designed in this passage. And so the first thing he talks to us about when it comes to contentment is that contentment is something that is learned. And we read about that in verses 11 and 12. And Justine illustrated that for us in her illustration with the ping pong balls, if you were following earlier. When I was young, uh, I played quite a few sports. And one of the sports I played for a number of years was baseball or fastball or hardball, some people call it. And the first time I tried out for a team, it was a team called the Giants, and we had these green uniforms with white stripes. When I went to try out for the team, uh, the coaches discovered I could hit, but I really couldn't catch fly balls very well at all. They wanted to try me in the outfield, but it really didn't work. But they also were deeply interested, and they approached me and they said, we want you to pitch. And there was two primary reasons for that. One of them was that I was left-handed, and if you were left-handed like I am, you know that <clears throat> we look a little unusual when we throw the ball. And also, I could throw the ball exceptionally hard for a person of my age. The problem was, as I began, especially in the first couple of years of pitching, was that I had little or no control. I really didn't know where the ball was going to end up when I threw it. And so when I went to throw it, and when I would pitch games, I would typically hit anywhere from two to four of the batters each game. I didn't do it on purpose, mind you, but I just didn't have any control. I hadn't learned to control the placement of the ball. And I had a fair bit of success, especially in those first couple of years, but I think it was mostly due to the fact that people that came into the batter's box were generally afraid I was going to hit them with the ball. In fact, one time, and again, this was an accident, I threw it as hard as I could, and it got tipped and hit the batter right in the face. They went down like a sack of potatoes and had to be carted off to the hospital. And I felt bad about that, even though it was an accident. But over time, with a lot of practice, with sore arms, sometimes you'd have to submerge your arm in ice because of the soreness from the, the, the pressure of throwing so much. And because I had really good coaches, after a few years, I learned how to control the ball well enough that I could throw it to very specific spots. And so if the batter was getting too close to the plate, I could throw the ball so it would cross the plate one or two inches right from the edge of the plate. So when they would try to swing at it, it would jam them and they couldn't hit properly. 
Or if they were too far away from the plate, I would throw to the outside inch or two of the plate so they were hitting at the end of their bat and couldn't hit it properly. Of course, once in a while, I would still revert to old habits and I would unloose a, a really wild one. I would throw it way over the head of the catcher and it would hit the back screen. Or once in a while, it would fly out of my hand and fly way over there. But I realized very quickly that I had to learn, and it was a long process, I had to learn how to throw the ball properly. And you know, Paul understood this. And I think, and I think maybe I've been guilty of this, we often think of Paul as having it all together at every level. And yet here he's saying two times in the text, I had to learn this stuff. It was a process. It was a process I'm guessing he really struggled with at times. Remember, we talked about this extensively last week. When he writes this book, he's in extremely difficult circumstances. He's writing from imprisonment. The conditions are extremely harsh. And all the time he's in these conditions, the threat of, of execution is over his head. And so Paul is saying, listen, when it comes to learning about contentment, there are no easy answers. There are no simple cliches. It doesn't come to us naturally. God, in fact, has to teach us this stuff. He has to form this stuff in us. There has to be a willingness in our heart to receive this. And so I ask the question, am I content to be content? Am I content to be content? Especially in God's terms. And so he says in verse 12 that he learned the secret. And he's sort of saying, it's like I've been in this science lab of life. And I've learned the secret that whether I'm in want, I, I, I'm hungry and I'm in want, or if I have enough food and, and I have plenty, I've learned the secret of godly contentment. And it all starts out with an admission, a deeply held admission, with me saying things like this, you know, as wonderful as the people are in my life, the people I love, the people I'm close to, as wonderful as that project I'm working on at, at work or that promotion I've had, I've come to realize and I've come to admit that not one of those things, not one of them or any combination of those things will ultimately satisfy me. I used to try and use those things to gain satisfaction, but I've come to realize that they will never ultimately satisfy me. I've come to realize that all this effort I've spent in life looking up to people and going, if only I could be in the place where they are, then I'd be satisfied. Or looking over the fence and saying, if only I could have what those people have, then somehow I'd be satisfied. I've come to realize and I've come to admit and I've come to repent as need be that none of those things, real or imagined, will ever bring contentment. And so again, I ask the question, am I content to be content? 
And when we come to that place, and I don't know about you, but in my experience, I've kind of had to learn this over and over again. We have to come to this place often over and over again. It's only then that we're really prepared to look to another source for contentment. And Paul says, the secret I have learned is that this contentment is exclusively found in the living Christ. You know, this last week, just a few days ago, my sister-in-law, Barb, uh, sent this beautiful song to Debbie and I, and it's a song by Fernando Ortega. And I want to quote some of the lyrics to you. They, They were deeply moving as I listened to them. Listen to these words. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. At the cross. And then a well-known verse, but it's interesting. Verse 13 and verse 19 are often used inappropriately out of context. They have to be read to be understood properly in context. He says in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And so people read this verse. I can do everything through he or through him who gives me strength. And they say, well, if I just draw on God's strength, I can accomplish anything I want. And God, in their mind, becomes the formula that they insert to accomplish their own personal plans. And clearly the context here is not saying that. He's saying, listen, first of all, this is not accomplished by some inner strength that we have. If I just try hard enough and somehow insert God in the mix, I will get whatever I want. No, this comes through divine empowerment the verse says. And so by faith I turn to God, and I turn each circumstance over to him, and he gives contentment. And the context, and it's very important to understand the context, the context is about coping with everything. Not doing everything. Coping with everything. And Paul says, through God's empowerment, I have learned to take whatever the world dishes out to me. And we all know that at times, the world is unfair, unjust, and hard. So Paul, he never says, you know, I enjoyed the pain of these circumstances. But what I do is I rejoice in what this set of circumstances has stimulated in me. I've learned to depend on Christ in new and deeper and fresh ways in these circumstances. I've learned to set aside the things that, relatively speaking, are unimportant. I've learned and I anticipate being able to relate to and have a ministry with people who have gone through similar things. It is what we have in Christ. Grace, forgiveness, 
the Spirit-filled life, the promise of His presence, the promise of His empowerment, no matter how messy life gets. Can I ask you a personal question? What is the opportunity God is giving me in whatever set of circumstances I find myself in right now? What's he wanting to form in my life? How is he wanting to allow me to let Christ empower me in this? Contentment, as we continue in the passage, is also about being thankful and generous. And so we see this in verse 10, and then in verses 14 through 19 in particular. And so Paul spends considerable time in those middle verses uh, dwelling on their sharing with him. You know, when I was in Thessalonica, you gave to me over and over again when I was in need, and now here I am in Rome, and you sent a gift from a pa- with Epaphroditus. He's carried it to me, and it's cared for me. And he's thankful that during the times when he was in need in verse 16, or when he had more than enough because they brought this stuff to him, he's thankful for the gifts that they have given, the partnership they've showed in the gospel. And you need to know that the church at Philippi didn't have tremendous resources, that that they were really giving sacrificially, that they had needs as well, and they were giving sacrificially as they gave. And he says, you gave sacrificially and you gave with a right attitude. He says in verse 10, um, you know, you were deeply concerned And you wanted to give, but you couldn't. You didn't have the opportunity to give. And we're not sure why. It's probably because Paul at that point didn't have any fixed address and was traveling around and they didn't know his cell number or whatever. So they couldn't get in touch with him. But when they did have opportunity, they stepped up and they helped him. And they understood fundamentally that it's not about paying bills. It's about saying, Jesus, what would you have me give? And I'm going to give exactly what you would have me give. I'm going to give sacrificially, and I'm going to give in a way that's tied to having a healthy attitude. And Paul says, listen to me carefully here, when we undertake that kind of giving, he says in verse 18, when we undertake that kind of giving, that kind of giving becomes, imagine it with me, a fragrant offering to God. It becomes an acceptable, it says verse 18, an acceptable sacrifice to God. And once again, we're about to read verse 19, which is often used inappropriately. It has to be understood in the context of the previous verses. In the context, he then says, And my God, in verse 19, will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this wonderful promise from God in verse 19 will be true in the context of that kind of giving. That God will meet all my needs, and I stress the word needs, out of the very abundance found in Christ. And I believe many people in our church understand this. 
I know that because of COVID that we are going through economically and in other ways a time of, you know, emotionally and psychologically, that we're going through a time of real relative hardship right now. And in our recent Over the Horizon offering, you folks gave so generously, and I believe sacrificially, to help others in need. We said we were going to take that offering and help others in need all around us. And we've been doing that. We've been spending some of those funds, not all of them, but some of the things we've done with that sacrificial offering is, is we've purchased food and supplies for the Lethbridge Soup Kitchen. We've sent teams of people down there to prepare and to serve meals. And then through my city um, care, we've purchased supplies for 300 kids to help fill their backpacks as they head back to school in the fall with needed school supplies so they can go to school. For a number of people in our uh, local community here, people who have lost jobs, people that are hurting, people that have lost loved ones, we've stepped into their life and in Jesus' name, bless them and help them. For our IWs, for Curtis and Linda, they had some needs in Paraguay. We've helped them. For Herson in Costa Rica, he told us that many people in their surrounding area of La Lydia were going without food, and so he slaughtered one of his cows to feed them. And so we've given some money to help feed the hungry in La Lydia. Thank you for that fragrant, sacrificial offering to God. Paul is saying, that kind of giving, listen to me carefully, it starts on earth and it ends up in heaven. It starts on earth and it ends up in heaven. And when you give sacrificially and, and you're a grateful person and you, and you really link those things, contentment comes much more readily. He then ends the book with a doxology. And he does this in order to make sure our focus is in the right place. And doxologies are often viewed as sort of a, a spontaneous utterance of praise by the person writing it. And I think that might be what's going on here. And so he says, let me offer this spontaneous praise, this doxology, this the, these, these parting words to keep our focus as we end the book in the right place. He says, to our, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen.